Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies... 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Figili Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. South Sudan rebel leader refuses to renounce violence. And Kenya's history of election violence threatens to repeat itself. In economics news, Nigerian court orders seizure of former oil minister's multi-million dollar property. And in sports news, Africa Cup of Nations to be played in June and July. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zambian High Commissioner to South Africa, Emmanuel Mwamba, has dismissed social media reports that former President Kenneth Kaunda has died. The Zambian government announced that the 93-year-old statesman had been admitted to hospital. South Africa's opposition DA has meanwhile apologized after issuing a statement expressing condolences over Kaunda's death. Noma Bulane reports. Twitter was abuzz this afternoon with numerous users sending messages of condolences to President Kenneth Kaunda's family and Zambian citizens. However, High Commissioner Emmanuel Mwamba has poured cold water on the rumours, confirming that KK, as he's known, is alive. He says a medical team had been deployed to Kaunda's home yesterday after complaints that he was feeling weak. He was then admitted to hospital where doctors carried out a comprehensive routine medical checkup. Mwamba says the elderly statesman is stable enough to be discharged from hospital. Kenya's electoral body says it's facing more than 300 court cases from candidates, parties and civil society groups before elections on the 8th of August, raising concern about whether the disputes can be resolved in time. President Uhuru Kenyatta will once again face Rayla Odinga, veteran opposition leader. The head of Odinga's legal team, Paul Mwangi, says he has lost count of the number of cases that filed against the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission. They've demanded that electronic systems are foolproof and that results announced at constituency level are final to remove the possibility of tampering in Nairobi. The Czech Republic's Foreign Minister Lubomo Zolarek has suggested that the European Union consider a military engagement in Libya in attempts to reduce the flow of migrants arriving by boat from there to Europe. Zolarek told the Austrian press agency that Europe needs to find a way to consolidate the country instead of just waiting for it to happen. The 2011 overthrow and killing of Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi caused chaos and created a power and security vacuum that turned Libya into a breeding ground for militia and militants. The United Nations Special Envoy for Yemen has ended a visit to Cairo praising the pivotal role of Egypt in the Yemeni peace process. Ishmael Od Sheikh Ahmed met, Egypt, uh, met Egyptian, Yemeni and other regional figures in his ongoing efforts to restart talks to end the brutal conflict in Yemen between the Saudi-backed government coalition and the Houthi rebels. The envoy says they were focusing efforts also on resuming civil service salary payments and reopening Sana'a's international airport to commercial flights. 
And finally, Nigerian Pastor Timothy Mutoso is to appear in the Port Elizabeth Magistrates Court in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province for a new bail application. Mutoso faces charges of human trafficking and sexual abuse after allegedly keeping underage girls at his house. The Jesus Dominion International Church leader was denied bail after his previous application, as all way to Matsipane reports. While handing down judgment, presiding magistrate Tanega Mashile said the nature and gravity of the offences permitted no bail. She cited that Omotoso was in the country legally with false documents and therefore could be a flight risk. She added that the accused also knew the identity of his witnesses and could also intimidate them. Scores of church members and those opposing his release are expected to gather outside Nulo courts in the city as they always show their support for their pastor. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Opposition leader and the exiled former first vice president of South Sudan has refused to renounce violence and declare a unilateral ceasefire in the ongoing crisis in his country. That's according to Botswana's former president, Fistas Mokhai. In a briefing to the United Nations Security Council in his capacity as the chair of the Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Commission set up after the signing of the now faltering peace agreement in August 2015. Despite an announcement of a unilateral ceasefire by the government in June, violence continues across the country and the humanitarian situation continues to worsen, leaving almost 2 million people on the brink of starvation. Show and Bryce Peace As insecurity grows and fighting rages, hopes for a peaceful resolution to the conflict that erupted in 2013 continue to fade, while calls from the peace facilitator for stakeholders to put the country first continue to fall on deaf ears. Listen to Festus Mohai speaking via video link from Juba. The message I conveyed to Dr. Riek Masha was to renounce violence, declare a unilateral ceasefire, and participate in the national dialogue. He declined to do so. However, he demanded a new political process by the region outside South Sudan. The United Nations has called the status quo unacceptable and unsustainable, with more than half of the country's population food insecure, with 1.7 million on the brink of death. United States Ambassador Michel Sisson. For the people of South Sudan, life is worse than ever before. This council needs to hold the parties on the ground accountable for their broken promises. Start with the violence. This council has been calling for a ceasefire in South Sudan since fighting escalated more than a year ago. In May, the government declared a unilateral ceasefire. But Rather than hold their fire, government forces are opening up new battlefronts. These military operations are forcing thousands of people from their homes. 
A national dialogue launched by the government earlier this year is being undermined by the deteriorating security and humanitarian environment, as Ethiopian Ambassador Tekada Alemu explained. His country currently holds the chair of the East African Intergovernmental Authority on Development. It is extremely difficult, as much as we appreciate the effort, to talk about genuine and inclusive political dialogue while there is an ongoing fighting throughout the country. That's why all parties have to immediately renounce violence and urgently take genuine steps to seize all hostilities. The full implementation of the 2015 peace agreement, as IGAD has reiterated, remains the only viable way forward. An IGAD ministerial team is expected to visit Juba on Monday to push for a revitalization of the peace agreement that remains unimplemented two years after its signing. Festus Mohai called it a window of opportunity. The revitalization of the implementation of the peace agreement is not an, a renegotiation. The forum will explore options that can restore activity and the prominence of the peace process. It is our hope that this revitalization process will be pursued in the spirit of peace, inclusivity and compromise. Western nations continue to express frustration at the lack of an arms embargo to pressure the leadership in the country and to prevent the continued flow of arms that is fueling the conflict. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Kenya goes to the polls in August amid fears of post-election violence. According to international election observer missions such as the European Union, Kenya's National Cohesion and Integration Commission, as well as several local and civil society organizations. The groups have warned of election chaos if there is a perception that the electoral process is mismanaged. The country's Independent Elections and Boundaries Commission has, however, moved to allay fears that the polls will be anything short of free, fair and credible. Kenya has a history of election-related violence. At least 1,500 people were killed during the 2007-2008 violence following disputed election results. Sarah Kimani reports. It is a high-stakes election. Some pollsters have even described it as a closely fought race between incumbent Uhuru Kenyatta and his main political rival, former Prime Minister Raila Odinga. This will be the second time that the two will be going head-to-head, this time under a more united opposition. Maina Kei is a human rights activist based in Kenya. It's the last time, for example, that Raila Odinga is going to contest. This is the last, and, and this, then of course there's the fear from the people who support Uhuru Kenyatta that he may become a one-term president. So tensions have already raised. So tight is the race that some international election observers, civil society organizations and government commissions have warned of possible post-election violence. Kagweri Ambogori is the chairperson of the Kenya National Commission of Human Rights. The stage it seems set for, for combustion uh, in case um, one party loses and another party wins. Electoral-related violence was witnessed after party primaries in April this year, especially in some of the country's traditional conflict hotspots. Human Rights Watch has reported cases of people moving from their homes for fear of attacks. Otieno Nyamoya is a researcher at the Human Rights Watch based in Kenya. There are those who have already received threats uh, with regard to their political position. 
In the eye of the political storm is the newly constituted Independent Elections and Boundaries Commission, IEBC. The electoral body has been accused of not being ready for the polls. Their contestations on whether the voters register is clean. The presidential ballot papers are yet to be printed due to a dispute over printing tender of the same. And the opposition has cast doubt on the commission's ability to deliver a free and fair election. Raila Odinga is opposition presidential candidate. The failure to meet the general desire for free, fair, transparent and credible elections has left deep wounds in the soul of our nation. The general election is just less than 20 days away. Uhuru Kenyatta, the Kenyan president. The IABC, like all public bodies, must be accountable. We must have confidence in its operations. So vital are they to democracy, and in order to do so, any doubts must be dispelled. Civil society organizations have argued that the failure to give timely information to the public by the IEBC has created room for rumor mills and speculation. If they do a good, transparent, credible job, there's no violence in the country. Wafula Chebukati is the chairperson of the Electoral Commission. I want to assure Kenyans that uh, free elections, fair elections, and peaceful elections are what the commission is preparing for. We are doing our part. We also want them to do their part of maintaining peace during this period. Despite warnings of election chaos risk, the Kenyan government says it is ready to secure the country during and after the electoral period. Uhuru Kenyatta again. My government is committed to enforcing the rule of law and ensuring the safety and security of all citizens and communities during these primaries and the general election scheduled in August. Many have argued that the International Criminal Court indictments that faced President Kenyatta and his then running mate William Ruto served as a deterrent to possible chaos in 2013. But they now fear that the 2007 post-election violence and the collapsed ICC cases are long forgotten and the threat of election-related violence this time round is real. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. More women are needed in religious leadership roles to help realize a new plan to prevent future atrocity crimes. That's the view of Isabel Apawo-Piri, Deputy General Secretary for Public Witness at the World Council of Churches based in Geneva. She was at UN headquarters in New York to launch the so-called FAIRS Plan of Action, the result of two years of intense consultations with religious leaders and organizations aimed at preventing incitement to commit gender genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Piri outlined the most important recommendations to Matthew Wells. There's a recognition that the, the faith community has power. For me, that's very important because recently there has been religious motivated uh, violence. Uh, politicians are using religion to boost their own positions and therefore motivating violence in their countries. And I think it's wrong, and the WCC stands you know, very firmly that uh, that's not right. Now, many religions, yeah. many denominations, of course, are <laughs> fairly patriarchal. Yes, yes. Does this plan properly represent women's views and, and faith perspective, if you like? You are right that, you know... Uh, 
religion and patriarchy you know, go hand in hand. I've seen that there is a section, especially in the section on prevention, that is directly addressing the issues of uh, how religion can prevent gender-based violence, which I think is very important. Because, of course, in, in, in some very conservative religious traditions, there is a, yeah. almost an encouragement of, uh, of violence, violence yes. especially in the domestic yeah. context, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate part of it, you know, that he, there are some people who use the scriptures, you know, to promote violence against women and children. And for me, that's not acceptable. Religion should be used to protect women and children. Religion is there to protect and not to destroy. And it also does seem that, uh, that many of those responsible for atrocity crimes are yes. young men. Um, who are perverting faiths such as Islam and Christianity. Yes. What kind of role could, can women play, and mothers in particular, being, if you like, a bulwark yeah. against that kind of radicalization? Yeah. It's not just mothers only. I think it's both mothers and fathers, you know, because these are our children. And from the beginning, we need to raise our children in such a way that they respect women and, uh, and their sisters. And for me, the most important person would be the father to show the boys how to protect their mother and their sister. And when it comes to our places of worship, it's uh, the religious leaders, because people respect religious leaders. Whatever they say, they take it seriously, even when it contradicts their daily experiences. So... With that kind of power, they need to use it to teach the right things about just gender relationships between men and women. In terms of yeah. women religious leaders, I mean, clearly you'd like to yes. see more of them. Definitely, I would like to see more of them because it's a, having more of them is a true reflection of what the society should be. God calls both men and women to become leaders, and we need to open these spaces so that people get used to the fact that, you know, what we did in the past was wrong to exclude women from a religious leadership roles. That was Isabel Apawo Piri, Deputy General Secretary for Public Witness at the World Council of Churches based in Geneva. And she was speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
The death threats against South Africa's ruling ANC MP Dr. Makosi Koza and a number of other prominent South Africans have once again raised questions about the ability and willingness of law enforcement agencies to protect public officials and ordinary citizens. Koza has been vocal in condemning President Jacob Zuma's leadership and has even called on him to step down. Our senior political correspondent Sepoe Kaneng filed this report. KwaZulu-Natal, Makosikoza's home province, is planning to institute disciplinary action against the outspoken ANC MP. This after Koza continued to raise her views outside party structures. Koza recently reiterated her call for President Zuma to step down during a conference for the future of South Africa. It's these words that have landed Koza in hot water. Mr. President! 11 million South Africans voted for you, Mr. President, and not just 1 million ANC members. You may wish to contest the ANC presidency in December 2017, but South Africa no longer needs you. Please save South Africa. Save jobs, Mr. President. Save the economy, Mr. President. Step aside and let moral and ethical leaders lead this country to a prosperous path. The ANC in Guazunatal says Koza has overstayed the mark and they have no choice but to take disciplinary action against her. According to party provincial spokesperson Tumsen Duli, Koza had all the opportunity to raise her views about the ANC leadership, including President Zuma, during the party's policy conference, but chose not to do so. The National Consultative Conference, as well as the National Policy Conference, were important platforms for us. All of us there had the right to say whatever we want to say about anybody including the president of the ANC, right in his face, right in the presence of delegates representing all branches throughout the country. But Comrade Mokosi never had the courage and audacity to stand up and articulate some of the views that she is recently uh, propagating in public, particularly using a platform of reactional forces. The ANC in the province says Koza has been conducting herself in an irredisciplinary manner, bringing the party into disrepute in the process, Nduli explains. And we said to the national leadership, coming from the policy conference, we would be intolerant to anybody who is involved in an act that undermines the ANC. Now, Comrade Marcos goes to a platform of our enemy. When we, we saw her participation there and her very vociferous articulation about how wrong is the ANC and how irrelevant is the ANC becoming in the in the in society. We said this cannot be allowed. We said we've got to act and acting now will send a clear message to those who may have the same views that if you are defeated internally, you have no right to go outside and continue to undermine the ANC. Koza will be served with a letter before Tuesday next week, informing her to appear before the ANC's Guazanatal Disciplinary Committee. Despite repeated calls by the ANC News, she was not available for comment. For SABC, I'm Rusima Kosini, Deben. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A key milestone has been reached in the fight against HIV according to UN health experts who say that more than half of all sufferers now have access to treatment. The announcement from the joint UN program on HIV AIDS accompanies new data showing that an estimated 37 million people had human 
immunodeficiency virus in 2016 and 11% drop since 2010. Countries in the eastern and southern Africa have led the way in reducing infection by nearly 40% in some cases, but children and other vulnerable communities remain at risk, as UNAIDS Dr. Peter Gaze tells Daniel Johnson. Yes, we see both uh, a very important reduction in the mortality that is related to people living with HIV, and we also see the most dramatic reduction in the occurrence of new infections in eastern and southern Africa between the year 2010 and the year 2016. It is of approximately 30% decline in new infections, so it is very important. So you've increased people's life expectancy, in some cases by many years, but let's talk about children. They're missing out on treatment in a big way. It is true. We see that children's treatment is actually lagging behind the levels of treatment that we see among adults. And of course, treatment for children, it is complex because on the one hand, children are tested either immediately after birth or a few weeks after birth. And so it is relatively straightforward to uh, identify those children and also make uh, treatment accessible to them. It is a bit more complex for children who've like passed those early years of their childhood because they are not in any specific health facility or not connected to those health facilities or health services per se. And so that remains a challenge. So more work needed to be done for mothers and, uh, and newborns. Let's move on to elsewhere in the central part of the continent. You're hoping that an initiative involving the African Union might reach out to more remote areas. Right. So the African Union has actually recently endorsed a plan that is called the catch-up plan for Western Central Africa, which aims to improve coverage of antiretroviral therapy for people living with HIV. And so that is something that carries a lot of hope. It is great that the African Union has put its weight behind that initiative because they have like a lot of power to actually make that initiative happen in the countries. There's another initiative that relates to healthcare workers. And so there the proposal is to bring in an additional 2 million healthcare workers because many of the issues that relate to access to treatment, of course, have to do with the fact that people first need to know that they are living with HIV. And so a lot of testing is required in many areas in Africa. So the concept of having a community health workers is really something that contributes to this issue of diagnosis of HIV. Of course, they can also be very helpful in connecting people that have been diagnosed with HIV to the treatment facilities. And actually, in the report that we put out, there is information about pilot experiences in several countries in Africa, including Zambia, Uganda, and South Africa, where it is exactly this community health worker uh, aspect that is able to bring up levels of awareness and also of treatment so that it carries a lot of hope. And finally, there's also concern about a rising number of infections among a particular uh, segment of the population, men who have, young men who have sex with men. So we have some limited information, like we're doing slightly less well among key populations, including among men who have sex with men. One thing that is a real promise, or one approach that is a real promise for men who have sex with men is the pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is something that has come along in just in recent years. So it is the taking of antiretroviral medicine 
by people who are not infected but who are at high risk of HIV infection. So there are several trials that have shown that this is a very effective intervention and the programs are most developed in the United States but in several Western Europe, European countries also men who have sex with men in particular are accessing that type of uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and just to extend to say that the same approach is also valid for other people who are at very high risk where currently we have pilot projects in uh, some areas of sub-Saharan Africa where young women in particular are at high risk of HIV, and so there is also intention to protect those women. That was Dr. Peter Geis of the Joint UN Programme on HIV-AIDS speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille-toi. Africa, Africa, women. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. The African Perspective. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. Bringing you the African Perspective. Hi, my name is Ray Chikapa Piri. Moana just now Piri. All I can wish you is that please listen to Channel Africa. But much more, be safe. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Zambian High Commissioner to South Africa, Emmanuel Mwamba, dismisses reports that former President Kenneth Kahunda has died. Kenya's electoral body faces more than 300 cases, court cases from candidates, parties and civil society groups before the 8th of August elections and the United Nations Special Envoy for Yemen has ended a visit to Cairo praising the pivotal role of Egypt in the Yemeni peace process. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Ram Nath Kovind, a politician backed by India's ruling Hindu nationalist-led coalition, easily won India's presidential election on Thursday, tightening the government's hold on positions of power. Kovind, from the Dalit community, the lowest of India's centuries-old caste hierarchy, beat the Congress party's Meira Kumar, also a Dalit, by an overwhelming majority. India's constitution provides a largely ceremonial role for the president, with the Prime Minister and his cabinet holding executive power. Rana Sen has more. Ramnath Kovind will occupy the 340-room presidential palace after his inauguration next week. Ruling BJP party spokesman Jafar Islam boasted his nomination reflected the government's intention to uplift the Dalit community, the lowest rung of India's social hierarchy. Our endeavor is always to ensure that the Dalit Samaj gets its due what has not been provided to them in the past. And it is this government who is actually ensuring that the poor class, the Dalit and minorities, whatever the attention they need to be getting, they need to get, they are getting now from this government because our view is that our approach and our philosophy is that to take everyone along. Kovind is a die-hard backer of the right-wing BJP but was on the fringes of India's mainstream politics. But now the former lawyer must rise above party loyalties, remember Modi is not his boss anymore and follow the rule book, said Muslim politician Muhammad Khan. We hope he will rise to the standards of the occasion and I'm certain that he will do his best to distance himself from the political influences that might seek to cloud his judgment. I would say this. We have always believed it was never about Mr. Kovind. It's about the fact that the nation stands at a crossroads right now. And this election right now is to remind them not to undermine the constitutional institutions on which this practice is built. Meera Kumar polled one of the highest number of votes any opposition candidate has backed so far and the former parliament speaker said the battle of ideologies has only just begun. My battle for ideology doesn't end. It will continue because the ideology, the value system, the principles that I am fighting for are held sacred by most of the people of my country. These are social justice inclusiveness, secularism, transparency, freedom of expression. I will continue to fight for these values at all the strength at my command. Modi is now training his guns on next month's vice presidential election, but his BJP party had a larger agenda, said analyst R. Rajgopalan. Mr. Narendra Modi, in 2014, ensured that victory of BJP. Because of that BJP victory, today, Narendra Modi has chosen his own man as president of India. When vice president election is going to be held, there also Mr. Vengayi Naidu is going to set a sweeping victory. Many of the BJP MPs were claiming 
that we have achieved half of the Hindu Rashtra. Kovin's victory caps a series of top appointments by Modi, tightening the grip of the Hindu right on public offices such as governors, state chief ministers and the heads of universities. But at the same time, the BJP's past three years in office has divided the society into distinct religious camps. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Ethiopia is now battling attack from the full army worm, a pest that has now affected 25 countries in Africa and is threatening the livelihoods of farmers, especially those growing maize. Channel Africa's Koleta Wanjohi has more. The fall armyworm, believed to have originated in the Americas, entered Africa in 2016 through West Africa. In February, it attacked Ethiopia, and in just six months, it has destroyed maize in over 140 districts in the country. Abdul Karim Abba, the deputy representative of Food and Agriculture Organization to Ethiopia, says as of now, it is hard to ascertain the level of damage the worms can cause. We still don't know uh, how much it's going to affect uh, the, the, uh, the production, how, um, at, at what production loss we are looking at. So it, it can vary from 10 to 30 percent on average. But if we have a farmer, a subsistence farmer, that feeds on what he is cropping, so he is cultivating maize for food and he loses 30 percent of his production, so we understand that the impact on the food security will be great. Reports show that over 370,000 hectares of maize have been attacked by the pest in the southern region of Ethiopia, and this number is on the rise as more farms are attacked daily. Abdul Karima adds that for now, they are advising farmers to manually kill the eggs of the worms on their crops, as opposed to depending on chemicals for spraying. The most sustainable way is to make sure that the, partners, uh, that the farmers know what the fall armyworm is, to recognize it, and to manage it in the field. So to go in the field, look at uh, the eggs that are quite visible on the leaves of uh, the maize and crush them. In this way, you kill 100, 100 uh, larvae in one go. So you have to go there, eliminate them physically, use uh, traps. Ethiopia is part of the 25 African countries that are looking for a solution to this fall armyworm, whose control is not yet known, and experts say they have to launch a research on it. Godfrey Bahigwa, the director of Department of Rural Economy and Agriculture at the African Union Commission, says there is no continental platform yet to sort out the problem. Largely now it is affecting maize, which is a, a, a staple crop in many of the countries, especially in eastern and southern Africa. But it has the potential to affect 80 crop species, 8-0 crop species. So you can imagine if it is not controlled, not only will it have impact on the step of foods, but also other economically imp- uh, important um, uh, crops. The Ethiopian government has so far invested about $2 million to assist farmers to control the pest through pesticides. However, this has only covered 40% of the affected crops. Koleto Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
A Nigerian court sitting in Lagos has sentenced nine foreigners to five years' imprisonment each for stealing crude oil in Nigeria. The court dismissed all the appeals for lack of merit. Justice Oho, who delivered the judgment, resolved all the issues in favor of the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission. Collins Atuhengbe reports from Lagos. The nine foreigners were first found guilty of crude theft in December 2015 by a federal high court after their inability to present authentic documentary evidence in respect of the crude which it loaded from Nigeria when it was accosted by security agents in Nigerian waters. The vessel Asteris had five Filipinos and four Bangladeshis on board when it was arrested in March 2015. They pleaded not guilty to theft of crude when the case came up for hearing in a high court in Lagos. On the 23rd of June 2015, but after a thorough investigation of the matter, they were found guilty on four count charges, which included illegal bunkery and conspiracy to steal the product. Subsequently, they were fined the sum of $5 million with a five year jail term on each of the counts if they failed to pay the fine. The 20 years jail term at five for each count had to run concurrently. But dissatisfied with the ruling, the accused took their case to the Court of Appeal, which upheld the ruling of the lower court. The panel of appeal court judges was led by Justice Frederick Koho, who also declared their appeal as lacking in merit and therefore struck it out. Along with the fine or jail term as the case may be if they fail to pay the charges, they are also to forfeit the vessel asteris, which they use for the illegal business. The Nigerian government. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. The late South African musician Ray Chigapa Piri has been described as a people's person, humble, a doting father and a family man. Different speakers shared the stage yesterday to remember the life and times of Piri, who was the lead singer of the well-known band Stimela. Thousands of his fans, as well as his family, friends and fellow musicians, flocked to his memorial service in Mbombela Mpumalanga. Yesterday, Piri died of cancer last week at the age of 70. Eric Lubisi reports. It was a joyful day as thousands of people from all over the country celebrated Piri's love by dancing to some of the songs performed by his group, Stimela. However, his children said they never got to spend enough time with their father because his work demanded he travel the world. His children, Polo and Lintle Piri, shared some of their best moments with him. They said mealtimes were the best as Piri was an amazing cook. Polo says he also fought it out with his father, who always wanted him to be a better person. His regret is not having learned music from his volatile musician father. We fought a lot, but I understood him after. Because there was a time, you know, when you were still growing up, and those things, they end up not taking you anywhere. And when he used to tell me, you must learn to shut up and listen. Because listening is a skill. He was the best cook I've ever seen. He was a chef. (laughs) I can cook also. Meanwhile, the Independent Music Performance Rights Association, IMPRA, has made a commitment to collect and pay royalties for Paris music. IMPRA Stodomona Modi says all the countries that play Paris music must pay his royalties. We promise you we will continue to fight. On behalf of IMPRA, I'm here to confirm our commitment to Brare and his beneficiaries 
that we will never sit on Brares needle time royalties, claiming that we don't know his whereabouts. An African can never be lost in Africa. If it means driving all the way from Gauteng to Brares home, we'll do it without hesitancy. Collecting societies are not supposed to be sitting with his beneficiaries' monies. The Mpumalanga government says Piri's death has robbed not only his home province, but the continent at large. Department of Culture, Sports and Recreation, MEC Nora Matlangu, commended Piri for putting the province on the world map. This is without a shadow of doubt a great loss to the province, the country and the continent. Pare was a world-renowned figure and represented us as a country in an exemplar manner. The name of Rechika Papiri will ring out loud when we consider legendary ambassador of our province and country. Piri's funeral service will be held on Saturday. Over 20 buses will transport the legend's fans from all over the province for his send-off. I'm Eric Lubisi in Bombela. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, right Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Your solar elevates. We are wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Mulibanji. Africa, Ayyomi, Kilon Shele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Wisani Matebula. Good morning. Thanks, Lulu. Nigerian court has ordered that a 37.5 million US dollar property owned by former oil minister Diazani Alison Madueke be seized as she faces charges of corruption and money laundering. The US Justice Department filed a civil complaint last Friday aimed at recovering about $144 million in assets allegedly obtained through bribes to Alison Madueke, who was Petroleum Minister from 2010 to 2015 under the presidency of Goodluck Jonathan. Alison Madueke's whereabouts are unclear, but she was last known to be in Britain. In April, she was charged in absentia with money laundering by Nigeria's Financial Crimes Commission. In South Africa, Mineral Resources Minister Msebe Nzizwane has been accused of uh, trying to bring an ailing mining industry to its knees with a controversial decision to freeze mining rights. Zwane says the moratorium is Necessary to ensure that uh, no rights are approved without being subjected to new regulations as set out in the mining charter. He earlier on agreed to suspend the charter pending a court ruling on a South African Chamber of Mines application to scrap it. The Chamber has since threatened court action if Zwane does not retract the freezing of mining rights. A partner at law firm Weber Wenzel, Jonathan Viran, says uh, the minister should rather encourage investment.
No, we need to encourage investment in, in our economy, uh, particularly the mining sector, in order to grow exports. And as you know, commodities is one of our largest exports. And I think this move to stop new mining activity, um, stop the renewal of rights and stop uh, the transfer of rights to, to new purchases um, is going to set us back a couple of steps. It's quite peculiar as well that the minister has decided to put out this notification yesterday to invite comment when last Friday he reached an agreement with the Chamber of Mines. That's sort of coming to the table with bad faith. An Egypt-based investment bank, EFG Herms, is expanding into frontier markets and plans to begin operations in Kenya earlier next week. This after Kenya's market regulators awarded the Egyptian bank brokerage and trading licenses. The company targets a market share of 5% in its first year of operation and up to 15% by the third year. EFG Herms will begin offering research for Kenyan and sub-Saharan African banks and consumer stocks by September and plans to expand its research coverage afterwards. And the South African Reserve Bank has cited poor economic growth as one of the key reasons why it decided to cut interest rates, which surprised many economists. Reserve Bank Governor Lesej Jekhanyak announced that the repo rate will drop by a quarter of a percentage point to 6.75%, bringing the prime lending rate to 10.52%. Hanyaho also says he is concerned about the deterioration of the growth outlook while investment is strained due to the South African government's proposed new mining charter. While positive growth is expected in the second uh, quarter, the bank's annual growth forecasts have been revised down further. The forecast for 2017 has been adjusted down from 1% to 0.5%, and the forecast for 2018 is down from 1.5% to 1.2%. Company News Now, where the world's second largest mobile operator, Vodafone, has reported better than expected 2.2% revenue growth in the first quarter, reflecting a robust performance in Italy and Spain and an acceleration in demand in Turkey. The company says the rise in organic service revenue, which was ahead of market forecasts of 1.4 to 1.9%, gave it confidence in its outlook for the full year when it expects to grow core earnings by 4 to 8%. Now, financial indicators. The dollar trading at 12.97 to the South African rand, 10.03 Botswana Pula, 8.76 Zambian Kwacha. It's also trading at uh, 0.76 to the British pound and a bit stronger against the euro at 0.86. Commodities now, gold $1,246, platinum $925 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $49.78 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. We begin with athletics in this hour. South African sprinter Wade Faniker says he will not attempt to run the 800 meters despite his coach and sprinting grade. Usain Bolt saying... He could perform well 
at the distance. Fanny Gerg says it will be difficult to fill in Bolt's shoes once the charismatic Jamaican bows out after the World Championship where he won face Fanny Gerg in the 200 meters, opting instead to just focus on the 100 meters. Let's clear the 800. It's <laughs> definitely not going to happen. Mm. But on, on filling up using shoes, I mean, uh, that's a massive, massive um, responsibility as an athlete. And, and, and I have to be honest, as, as an athlete, I've still got a, 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 a quite a long way to go before I even get to as close as, as the heights that Usain has, has, has reached. And we have to give him the respect that's due. Um, we have to uh, honor him for what he's achieved. And, and, and I still have quite a lot of, of, of years that I still have to go before I can say, yes, I filled Usain Bolt's shoes in. So I think it's really just for me to, to keep on doing what, what, what I'm doing and, and hopefully I can reach the heights that, that he has and, and maybe even try and come close to the times that he's run. The South African smashed the 400-meter world record in the Rio Olympics last year with a time of 43.03 seconds. He says he hopes to be the first person to run 400 meters in under 43 seconds. I can definitely think of a 42, but the, after the comma, we will keep that a question. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you, if you think of it, I mean, to, at the age of 24 last year, um, running a 43.03, which is so close to running a sub. Um, it's definitely something that we need to aim for. I mean, there's no use me still doing track and field if I'm not going to aim for, for bettering what I'm doing. And I don't want to bet it by one split. I want to actually do uh, a valid attempt at, at, at improving it. So um, I'd like to believe that I'd eventually get there. I mean, it's, it's bound to happen. I just need to... Um, at, at the right race and have the right conditions and the right uh, perfect moment and I'm sure it will happen. Fanny Gerg with a season best of 43.62 seconds competes at the 400 meter race at the Diamond League meeting in Monaco today. On to hockey news, South African women's hockey team earned themselves automatic qualification for next year's Hockey World Cup in England with a 3-0 victory over Ireland at the Vets Astro in Johannesburg taking on their first of the playoff games for 5th to 8th place at the Hockey World League. The South Africans needed to win the match to guarantee at least 6th spot, and with that, a place in the global tournament. That they did in convincing fashion, and they'll face Japan in their next playoff game on Saturday afternoon with the aim of finishing in 5th spot at their home tournament. Japan defeated India 2-0 in their playoff game. Football news, the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations will be held in June and July. The Confederation of African Football has confirmed. The tournament is usually held in January and February, causing disputes with European clubs who had to release players in the middle of the season. The 2019 event in Cameroon will be contested by 24 teams instead of 16. The changes were rubber-stamped by the CAF Executive Committee in a meeting in the Moroccan capital, Rabat. The two-time major winner Jordan Spieth says his opening round in the British Open at the Royal Bergdale today and yes, was one of the finest he had ever produced in a major after he took a share of the clubhouse lead with a five-under-par score of 65. Maybe a bit surprised at, at being able to um, to start off this this Open extremely strong and not have to you know grind too much the next few, but um, at this course and at this Open. Uh, at the Open Championship and, and specifically at this golf course, I know that conditions change this entire um, this entire leaderboard. So um, it's a really good start. 
I know what's coming tomorrow and know that even par it would be as good or better of a score than today if what's forecasted gets here. So um, important to get to get in red numbers today. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar refuses to renounce violence. Kenya's history of election violence threatens to repeat itself and a key milestone reach in the fight against HIV. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us a WhatsApp at 277 Three double zero double three two seven or an SMS on two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero or send an email at info channel Africa to see us today or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency seven two three zero kilohertz on the forty one meter band to Southern Africa is Stimela with a song titled Unfinished Story. Unfinished story.